having come through thanksgiving and looking towards the Christmas season, we will begin a series of messages next week on Christ. We've looked at walking with God, and over the next couple weeks in December, we will look at God walking with us, Emmanuel. But I thought this morning I would look at the Christian West in Psalm 33 is where we would turn. I'd like one additional announcement, uh, and that is for tomorrow, ladies, it did not make the bulletin because it's so busy, but if you are free and you can, tomorrow there is a Christmas decoration day. Some of you, I know, were hoping to come in this morning and see Christmas trees and Christmas lights and Christmas decorations and Christmas this and Christmas that. You will get that next week, I promise. Uh, we will do that. The ladies will do that tomorrow. If you want to come up, you can, uh, you can come and help. They'll be here at 10 a.m. tomorrow. In fact, for the staff, we will probably just do our staff meeting on Tuesday because there'll be so much of a buzz of people flying around here. We'll just do staff meeting on Tuesday so that we can give our helping hands uh, to those who are help here doing that. I know tomorrow I'm going to be bringing down at least three Christmas trees uh, from the attic, which is up there. But luckily we have a lift, so don't pity me. It, it's just drag it over, drop it on there, and come down. It's, it's not that hard, uh, but we'll be doing that tomorrow. Uh, I want to look at the Christian West today because we are under assault. Amen. And I don't mean this to be a political message. That's not the aim of it at all. I want to look at our heritage and our roots. I want to look at why we are thankful and ways in which we can build against or have a defense against the decline of the West, which is in rapid succession. Psalm 33 is a passage, at least one verse, that is often used, but I thought I would use the whole psalm today as I teach on the three points and some of the sub-points. I think we can find reasonable hope and learning from it as we go through it. So let's read the whole psalm today. Uh, Together we'll pray. And then we'll jump into the preaching of the Word of God. The Bible says in Psalm 33 and verse 1, Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. In other words, it's beautiful for the upright. Praise the Lord with harps. Sing unto Him with the psaltery and an instrument of ten strings. Sing unto Him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud noise. For the word of the Lord is right, and all His works are done in truth. He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as in heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever. The thoughts of his heart To all generations, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looketh from heaven, he beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioneth their hearts alike, he considereth all their works. There is no king saved by the multitude of an host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. And horse is a vain thing for safety, Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. 
for our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope in thee. Father, help us now as we look at just who we are. We have come through a week of gratitude. Families gathered together and certainly we are grateful for you, our God. We are thankful for the families in our generations, but we are also thankful for this wonderful land. And the nations of this earth, as was read in the early psalm today, who recognize you as God. Those nations are few and far between today. Even our own land seems to have forsaken you. Help us, I pray this hour, as we look at the principles that established the Christian West so that we might understand as well how each of us daily should be established as we live this life. Bless all that is said and done in this place today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Christian West, as it has become uh, become named or has become the title of what we live in today, has all but vanished. Europe the seedbed for biblical Christianity from the Pauline age honestly forward, is now determinedly pagan and aggressively humanistic at best. America doesn't seem much better. We're being torn apart at our very roots. Christianity has been demonized, demoralized, and debated without our ranks, all while within our ranks... It has been debased, defrauded, and destroyed. Happy Thanksgiving. What do you have to be thankful for? I'm so thankful that tomorrow is Black Friday, we might have all said on Thursday. Is that who we are? You see, if you forget who you are, you forget how to live. And that which is called the West, in air quotes, has been predominantly Christian for almost 500 years. Today, what I would like to do in the preaching is to look at why we should be thankful for all that has been given to us by those who have preceded us. The fall of the Christian West, I might add, means the doom for the world. There is no help coming from anywhere else. Now, we might, as believers, say, well, that's a good thing because the rapture is nigh. It is. But when the rapture happens, all of Christianity will be removed from the world and God's wrath will be poured out upon it. The fall of the Christian West means doom for the world. There is no other place place built on the moral, ethical, and biblical basis as our nation, Great Britain, and many of the Western European nations were built upon. Now, you don't need to lament the fact that you love the Christian West. We are told today that it is an an evil thing and we ought to be uh, put out of society and that these values are the problem and these colonizers. By the way, whenever you hear someone today say that the colonizers are evil, they're essentially saying that Christianity is evil. It's a buzzword. The Christian West has done more good for the world than any other people group outside of Israel. We live in an age where history is being rewritten to paint God, Christianity, and the 
morality of the West as evil and worthy of elimination. I would remind us this morning that we who are Christians in the West are the only hope for the souls of mankind, for we have the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. So this morning, I'd like us to look at three aspects of the Christian West. First, we begin with the West's critical developments. Now, it's going to be a little bit of a history lesson this morning. Are there any history buffs in here? You four people will enjoy the message. The rest of us might be learning along together. There were many developments that led to the totality of what is today the West, and we might say the pre-World War West, where Christianity was predominant, where the idea of morals and ethics and biblical values were held commonly by those who were citizens of this land, even if they never darkened the door of a church. But today that is not so. But what we're looking at in this first point is, what was it that caused the development of these ideas? And some of us never look back into history to learn from it so that we're not doomed to then repeat it. We learn from history, and that's what we do this morning. There were two key, I should say, core critical developments that happened in history, especially in the 15 and 1400s, that brought to us the West that we know today. The first of these biblical concepts or developments that happened within humanity was the concept of individual soul liberty. Now, how many of you know what that means? What does individual soul liberty mean? Well, it just means that I am free to have a relationship with God alone. I am responsible for my relationship with God. It's not that I'm born into a church or I'm baptized into a faith. It's not something that I get by birthright, but rather my soul, my conscience, my choices are what I'm responsible for before Almighty God. Listen, before the 1500s, that was not a known concept except for in very small sects of religious practices. By the way, Baptists come from a group called the Anabaptists, which trace their history through three groups, the Huguenots, the Paulicians, and the Moravians, which predate the the Reformation. But simply to say, individual soul liberty came to its full flower or its understanding by the common man due in large part and in no significant part to the Reformation. Whenever a believer gives up their individual soul liberty in favor of following the demands of another person or an affiliation with a church, they do indeed compromise the essential doctrine of the Christian faith. You are responsible for you before Almighty God. The Reformation set Protestantism loose on the world. As Baptists, the Reformers were only catching up with what our spiritual forefathers already believed and practiced. That the church was not the answer for our soul. We, in a relationship with God, were the only solution for our soul. I'm not diminishing at all what the Reformers did. Luther in Germany, Zwingli and Calvin in Switzerland... Petri in Sweden, Knox in Scotland, even the pagan king Henry VIII in England, his for marital reasons, not for religious reasons, he chose to depart from the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church 
taught that everyone was baptized into their faith, and so there was nothing responsible. You could buy indulgences, you could go and have a, a priest absolve you of your sins, and so there was no individual responsibility, therefore there was no individual soul liberty that you had. Oh friend, the Reformation taught us that there is a need for soul liberty. The concept of liberty that we find in many of our constitutions and in our, many of our framing documents of our states and of our nation, even in Great Britain, in, their, in their, many of their documents and formation, the modern governance of the West and the Christian roots of it are tied to this concept of individual soul liberty. The Bible teaches that each human soul must accept freely the relationship that God offers through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3 and in verse number 17. He says this, Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. All that Paul is writing up to this point is telling us that we individually, not corporately, but we individually are responsible for our relationship with God. And it is the Spirit of God that works in us that changes us into the image or the glorious image of Almighty God. He goes on and says, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience, Paul would go on and say, in the sight of God. To have freedom then... There must be a people who have a relationship with God. To have freedom, there must be then a virtuous people. For people to be virtuous, they must have faith in the divine. They must have faith in God. All the liberties that exist in the Western nations exist because of the morality of the individual base of objective truth found only in the Christian faith, found only in the Word of God. In other words, there's no other people, there's no other governance, there's no other uh, a set of political rules or mores that have been followed that has led to truth and objective truth being practiced by a people than in what is known as the Christian West. Right. True liberty, as I put in your notes then, requires freedom, virtue, and faith. One of the critical developments that had to exist to see the land that we have today. And this predates the first colonists getting on a ship and coming to this land for trade or for commerce or for the freedom to practice their religion. These were born in Europe. What was the seedbed of Christianity? And is now a dead husk of what it used to be. The second development that is farther in our past is that of the individual's scriptural learning. If individual soul liberty is one element, then the other thing that developed that made the West what it is today is that you and I can pick this book up and we can read it. Oh, let me tell you something. By the time we're done, I will make the historical point of the importance of the Bible. But I want you to get, if you get nothing else from this, how important you should see the Bible in your everyday life. There is no West. There is no Christian West if there isn't the individual holding and learning the Scriptures. 
God is the God of the spoken word, the written word. Jesus is called the living word in the Gospel of John. If you were to go to ancient Israel, every Israelite home from Deuteronomy 6 would have the word of God literally posted everywhere and around their house. So that before their eyes, at the exit of the house, at the entrance into the house, outside their house, in every room of their house, there would be the Torah, the scriptures there. That is God's design that we would hold the word of God in our hand. But the dark ages before the Reformation, that wasn't possible. The Catholic Church had constricted the ability to learn by restricting the freedom to read. By the way, this is free. This is my opinion. I believe the modern-day Internet movement where all of us are hooked as junkies to the Internet for our piece of information and our news source... We are actually, even though we have many more ways to communicate today, and communication is ubiquitous, that means it's everywhere, we have been choked down to that which goes over a communication wire and that I see in my tweets or in my Facebook or my Instagram as my only source of information. We have, instead of being free with with discourse with one another, now because of technology, we've been constricted back to where we have one source and one flow. By the way, it has to be that way at the end times. That's why we know we're near them. Johannes Gutenberg. Now, did you think you were coming to church this morning to hear a message on him? on or around 1450, introduced the movable type printing press to Europe. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, one of the best sources of information kids still to this day that you can get, tells me that there were other movable type presses in Japan and in Korea before or that predate Gutenberg, but Gutenberg in Europe introduced the movable type printing press. What was the first thing that Gutenberg printed? Do you know why Gutenberg printed the Bible? Why Gutenberg would risk his own family, his own safety? Before the reformers ever nailed the first thesis to a church door, why he would print the Bible? Because he believed in his heart of hearts that the freedom of man was to hold the word of God and know it in their own hands. And so he printed and he printed and he printed the Bible. That's how important it was for him. How casually do you treat your own Bible? The Christian West was built upon the Word of God. You cannot walk through the monuments of our great land. You cannot walk through Washington, D.C. and not see etched in the edifices, in the marble structures themselves... All of the references to God and to Scripture, you cannot read in history, no matter how hard they try to rewrite it, how our founding fathers in this country, the colonials as we call them, how they trusted in God and God alone. You cannot see for the colonists who came here for spiritual liberty, how they came to these shores fleeing in Europe, yet oppression from different sects. They came here so that they could worship God in their own way. This land was built, the West was built upon the Word of God. Nearly all the Western political and social thinkers valued the Bible. They learned from it. 
They use it as their guide. And yet we look at it as a boring task that the pastor reminds us of Sunday after Sunday. Is it any wonder why our culture and our country and our commonwealth is in the shape that it's in? By the way, it's just not a youth problem, or as Rush used to say, the youths. It's not just the young kids. It's the old kids, too, that don't like to read the Bible. In the millennial kingdom, did you know that God will still use His Word to govern and to lead? Isaiah 55 and verse 11, the Bible says this, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I send it. We use this verse all the time and we say, Hey, listen, if we just send out the good word, it will not return void. This is actually a verse in context of the millennial kingdom. Jesus is saying, I will give forth or usher forth my word throughout the world ruled by a theocracy in that day. And it will not come back to me empty or void of its purpose. It will accomplish what I sent it to do. If it's important then in a near perfect world, how much more important the word of God is in our present evil world. The words of old Job ring true at this point, where he said in Job 23 and verse 12, Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Now, some of us had some excessive food probably this week. Job says, it's more important than that last morsel of bread that I need to eat when I haven't eaten in a long time. The West was built on the individual having the liberty to free, to be free, excuse me, and informed on how he ought to live. The liberty and the learning of the soul and from the scriptures are essential. These were the touchstones of a cultural shift from the dark ages of empires, monarchies, dynasties, and dead religion to the world that we know today. The Reformation enlightened the soul of man that he was solely responsible before God for himself. The Renaissance followed enlightening the, thinking, the enlightenment process, and it enhanced the thinking of man. By the way, much of what is wrong with the world today is that we have kept the Renaissance enlightenment, but we have forsaken the scriptural founding of the Reformation. Everybody's thinking, everybody's using logic, everybody's free to do their own thing, but there's no spiritual anchor. For the soul. The West was born from a desire for a relationship with God and with the realization for self government by the individual. This brings us then to the second point this morning, and that is the West's core distinctives. What makes us unique? Now, some of you think there's no way you can get this into two points. And your answer is you're probably right. These are the two as a pastor that are most important. I have no doubt that if we spent time and looked at both bacon, and I don't mean the stuff you had for breakfast this morning, but uh, the, the political thinker, or Burke, or if we looked at Hobbes, or if we looked at other political thinkers, that we could learn and reason and understand the political theorems that shape the West today. But all of those theorems are built upon biblical scripture. The only ones that are important to me as a pastor that I must pass along to you as citizens of the Christian West, the great Satan to many of the world, 
are these two in particular. And that is first, the value of life. The Bible and basics of self-government rested on this first distinctive. Do we value life? Oh, there are hosts of governances that have seen their day in the world that treat human life as if it is trash. There are savages and there are barbarians. There are murderers and monsters. But it's only through the West's core distinctive of the unique value on human life that makes us who we are. And that's why we don't enter wars capriciously. It's why we don't engage in murder actively. It's why we value life from the youngest and most innocent among us to the oldest that we meet. Human life has value because the Bible teaches us that human life has value. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6 The Bible says this, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Now, let me say something here. This is God's idea of government. You say, wait, wait, couldn't God give us a little more insight into how government should run? This is God's idea of government. Why our present day government has to have volumes of notes to pass one bill, 17,000 pages in the last bill that they passed, and God could sum up human government in one sentence, tells you really who you should be trusting, the guy that can put it succinctly. Make no mistake, though, the West values life. If you look here in our passage, the Bible tells us in Psalm 33, these things to be so... He says in verse number 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear Him, upon them that hope in His mercy. To do what? To deliver their soul from death. To keep them alive in famine. Of course, the application would be for Israel as they would turn to Him. But there is an application for any nation whose God is the Lord. The West values the life of even one human being. The world without God, without the Christian West, is self-preserving and will kill off as many human beings as they need to keep their power. One of the modern lies to destroy great men, by the way, is the lie that we're told about Christopher Columbus. What have you heard about old Chris? Let me tell you some actual stories. By the way, I'm going to be citing three sources this morning. David Barton, wonderful historical writer, his book is called The American, uh, the American Story, and this one is called The Beginning. It's a great book, highly recommended to your reading. I'm going to be citing the Smithsonian Institute, Ooh, that liberal bastion that it is, but there's truth in it, and the Encyclopedia Britannica, that it, Britannica, I love those Brits. We're told by the moderns that Christopher Columbus was an evil colonizer seemingly hell-bent on destroying any and all pristine and innocent cultures in this land. When he arrived, Columbus, according to accurate history, in what he termed the West Indies, which was actually the Dominican Republic, he met two tribes of people, the Tainos and the Caribs. According to David Barton, historian, he says the first which he met on his initial voyage were the Taino, whom he viewed, these are Columbus's words, as very kind and gentle. 
He praised them as, quote, the best people in the world. He openly affirmed a better race there cannot be than these souls. He even advocated back to the Spanish government for their full equality in citizenship with with duly given civil rights. The other tribe on the island were called the Caribs. Now, where is the Dominican and what sea is it in? The Caribbean. So we know which tribe won. (laughs) The Taino did not. We do not go on cruises in the Taino. We go in the Caribbean. And so we know which one won. They got their name Carib from that. But another name for them was Canib. Do you know what that word extended came to mean, according to the Smithsonian? The Canib tribe were cannibals, and the Western world became, became aware that there were human beings who were cannibals in the world. It was ghastly to Columbus. In Columbus's return to Europe after his first voyage, he was forced to leave some of his men with the Taino. His second voyage brought back 1,200 settlers with 17 ships. The Caribs had attacked and killed many of the Spanish settlers and taken captive the Taino women. Upon finding the captives, Columbus discovered a terrifying atrocity. The Caribs would force the Taino women to give birth to a child that they would in turn eat. Dr. Diego Alvarez Chanca traveled as the doctor for the expeditions, for the voyages for Columbus. His letters are kept in memoriam by the Smithsonian Institute. Here's what he wrote of those passive, kind, gentle souls who were colonized by the evil West. Here are his words. He said, these captive women told us that the Caribbean men used them with such cruelty as would scarcely be believed and that they eat the children which they bear to them only to bring up those which they have by their native wives. Such of their male enemies as they can take alive, they bring here to their homes to make a feast of them. And those who are killed in battle, they eat up after the fighting is over. They claim that the flesh of a man is as good to eat, that nothing like it can be be compared. And this is pretty evident, he writes. For of the human bones we found in their houses, everything that could be gnawed had already been gnawed, so that nothing else remains of them but was too hard to be eaten. In one of the houses, we found the neck of a man undergoing the process of cooking in a pot, preparatory for eating. The habits of these carabies, he concluded, are beastly. Are they that innocent? And by the way, before we crush them... The heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? There's no end to the depravity of mankind. I'm not saying that all of the explorers were saints, but neither were all of the explorers who are of the Christian West sinners either. We need to stop listening to the lies that we are told. My point in telling you this ghastly story is to make you aware that the Christian West brought decency, morality, and ethical mores to the savage lands of the Western Hemisphere. If you wanted, I could go even deeper into the depravity of the Mayans and the Incas and many of the tribes that inhabited North America. Not all the explorers were Christian, and not all of the Christians that were explorers acted as such. But the idea that the Christian West brought all the evils into the world is just not true. 
The depravity of man, it has been said, is tamed by either force and power or by faith in God. Those are the two ways in which you tame the depravity of the human soul. And so where force was necessary, it was applied. And where faith was received, it was applied. It brings us to the second value. We value life, all life. From that, from conception to that which enters the grave, no matter how old or how long God gives us on the earth, there is no age that is a trouble to society. Life is a blessing. The second aspect, letter B, you can write there, the veneration of law. This is the second key distinctive. In other words, there is a law of the land. June 12th, 12.15, what's important about that day? Go. Nate came to the first service and ran the computer. He's the only one that can answer. What is it, Nate? The Magna Carta. Now, some of you say the who, what, what? It predated the Reformation, but it was a symbol and a sign by the British that the king was subject to the rule of law And that men everywhere ought to be free. Those are the two core things that are drawn even still today from the Magna Carta. The Bible teaches us much about this principle. Here in Psalm 33, it tells us, The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. There are objective truths. There are laws of God, and then there are laws of man. And those which are established as laws we ought to obey. This is where the distinctives become very personal this morning. We can all amen and say we value life, and I hope we do. The problem is, do we listen to and obey that which is given to us as command and principle and precept from the Word of God? Do we value the law by which we should live our lives by? First, the law of our land. Do we even obey that? It's hard for us to sell how good the Christian West is when we as Christians in the West don't even want to obey the law. It becomes a problem. I'm reminded always when I talk about the veneration or the respect and reverence we give to the law. Romans 13, verses 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? In other words, what's going to keep you from being afraid of that authority? Do that which is good. Well, that'll keep you from being afraid. You know, I don't ever have to look down at my speedometer when I pass a police officer running a radar check if I'm going the speed limit. I don't have to worry about cheating on my taxes if I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't have to worry about embezzling money if I don't embezzle money. It's pretty simple from the Word of God. If you value, if you venerate, if you respect and reverence the idea of law and order, then respect it in every way. Oh, we can look on the television set and see just how horrible our world is becoming because no one, not even Christians anymore, wholly value or venerate the law. Well, it's an unjust law, then change it. So ready are Christians to run and say, I'll obey God rather than man, with their pious look and their bent eyebrow. And the answer is that falls into a very small category. If they come in here by armed force and try to shut down our church, we will meet. I'll be here on that Sunday preaching as I always am. And if they haul me off in cuffs, so be it. We're not at that point. 
There's so many ways in which we just use that as a cop-out. He goes on to say, For he is the minister of God to thee for good, but if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. By the way, why does it seem in our modern age good is being punished? The answer is because we have elected or established evil lawmakers. At least in our land, in the Christian West called America, we're allowed to pick our lawmakers. The powers that be are to govern or punish the wicked, not those who obey the law. The law is venerated through the observation of justice while ensuring everyone's opportunities are equal. Listen to Ezekiel's scathing assessment of Israel's nature in falling. They no longer venerated the laws that God had given them to them for both a free and fair society. It sounds eerily similar to us. And what I want you to note that is that in every category, every group of society, apparently I need to make that point very hard there, I don't know, that every group of society in Israel's day, and it seems in our day, every sect or group of society, every segment of society seems to be doing the same thing they were doing in Ezekiel's judgment. Here's what he says. In Ezekiel 22 and verse 25, there is a conspiracy of her prophets. These are the people that are the preachers that proclaim and herald the truth. In the midst thereof, like a roaring lion ravening the prey, they have devoured souls. They have taken the treasures and treasure and precious things. They have made her many widows in the midst thereof. Those lying preachers. Her priests, by the way, the priests would have been the tribe of Levi, those who would most reflect the modern day, the New Testament Christian. In other words, those that understood what was good and right and just and should have been doing it. Notice what they did if we keep reading. Her priests have violated my law. They've profaned my holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and profane. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean and have hid their eyes from my Sabbath or from my personal worship. And I am profaned among them. The prophets were bad, the priests were bad, but at least the government was good. Keep reading. Her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves, ravening the prey, to shed blood and to destroy souls, to get dishonest gain. Man, all three groups, and as if that wasn't bad enough, it seems that this is a trickle-down effect. When the men of God no longer preach the truth of God, the people of God, those that call themselves Christians, weren't doing what they were supposed to do, so the government ends up being rotten and corrupt as well. And it tells us, he circles here to the prophets again, he says our prophets have daubed them with untempered mortar. In other words, they made them fancy on the out- outside, but that mortar was not going to hold. Those stones were going to fall. Seeing vanity and divining lies unto them, saying, Thus the Lord God, and with the Lord hath not spoken. And then he comes to the final group, the people. The people of the land have, have used oppression. They've exercised robbery, have vexed the poor and needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. And Ezekiel, God pleading through him, says, I sought for a man. I wanted just one good person that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it. But God laments, I found none. Wow. Therefore, uh or because of this, you might say, have I poured out my indignation upon them. I've consumed them with the fire of my wrath. 
Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord God. This leaves us disappointed, my friend, in humanity. But it also leaves us asking the question, how can I be sure that I venerate or respect, value, hold in high esteem the law? Ephesians 4 and verse 17 tells us the secret as Christians living in the West. He says, this I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as the other Gentile walk. In the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life or the expected way to live of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Who, those people who do not know God, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you Christians, you believers of the West, you have not so learned Christ, he begs. If so be that ye have heard him and been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God, or in the manner of God, or in the likeness of God, or in the Christ-likeness, Christianity is created in what? Righteousness, that is right actions, and true holiness, true attitudes. I'm pursuing it for the right thing. For the right reason. I want to be separated unto God because God is different than this world. That's true holiness. This brings us then finally to the West's current decline. Now, Some of you are thinking, man, happy Thanksgiving, Pastor. Is this all you thought about the whole time you were eating turkey and ham? As I dozed off in my tryptophan stupor Thursday night, this is all that came to me. I'm kidding. No, I've been working on this one for a while. By the way, not because I think we necessarily need it, but we do need it. In other words, when a church like ours goes out into the community to make a difference in the world, we have to know who we are and why we're doing what we're doing. The problem for most churches today is they show up and get a rah, 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 shish, and out the door they go, and that's their Sunday service, and they've never been taught anything from the Word of God. He says in verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. So why are we not happy anymore? Why does it seem we're no longer blessed here in the West? There's two reasons that I came up with. You say, only two? Well, I mean, there's a lot, but I figured you want to leave about a decent hour, and I want to leave at a decent hour this morning. The first one I put is irrepressible lust. Lust that is unfettered, not controlled. Not restrained, not repressed. In verse number 10, we find both of the points that we'll be dealing with. He says, the Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. The idea of heathen is everyone who lusts or thinks completely against the God-ordained order. That's what a heathen is. Lust is a Bible word that simply means I want what I want and I will do anything I want to get it. It is amazing to me how much of the design of the 1980s are coming back in style. There was a lot of great things that went on in the 80s. And there was a whole lot of terrible things that went on in the 80s. I'm old enough to have lived through them. Some of the kids in here are like, that seems so long ago. Was that before computers? (laughs) It was, well before computers. The only computers we had were on, like, rockets we shot into space, astronauts on them. 
It is irrepressible lust that causes us to sin. James tells us this pattern in James 1 and verse 13. Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But, here's the but. Where does the temptation come from? But, every man is tempted. Ugh. All right, there's the, there's the idea. All of us face temptation. Whenever I meet someone as a pastor that comes to me and they claim to be a Christian and say, I don't have any temptations, pastor. I laugh and say, I bet I can name a few. Every man is tempted. But what's the pattern? When he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. In other words, we do not repress that lust. We do not set that lust and say, I'm going to control it. It's not going to control me. I'm going to say no to that sinful passion. I'm going to say no to that sinful desire. I'm saying no. Is that me, Scott? Am I keep bun- I thought I'd keep hearing a crackle. Maybe it's in my ears. He finishes by saying, when lust hath conceived, oh, what a thought, conception, it's born into an action. It bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, does what? Bringeth forth death, separation from God. God addresses this issue, by the way, with Israel corporately as a nation. In Isaiah's writings, and boy, does it sound like an equal part warning to the Christian West today. Here's what he says in Isaiah 1 in verse 4. Ah, sinful nation. That's how I always read it. It's kind of how the prophet is going to talk throughout the rest of this, if you read anything from Isaiah. He's ah, what's wrong with you people? By the way, that's what God thinks of your lusts when you don't repress them, when you don't control them. A people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Why should you be stricken anymore? He literally is saying, in essence, why should I give you any more punishment? You don't listen to any of the stuff I've given you. Why should you be stricken anymore? What else can I do to you, he says. You will revolt more and more. Notice what he says. The whole head is sick. And the whole heart, it's too weak to actually deal with those terrible thoughts in your head. You don't have the stomach for it. You don't have the guts to take it on. The heart is faint, he says. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. Can I give you an example of a modern-day putrefying sore? It's when a man dresses up as a woman and reads to five-year-olds in the library. It's a putrefying sore. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. The ointment here is a picture, a symbol of the New Testament Spirit of God. There's been no application of God and His Holy Spirit to this terrible atrocities that you all are doing. And so the conclusion is what? Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. It's almost as if God was watching the news over the last three years and said, huh, this is what it looks like, friend. Strangers devour it, your land, excuse me, strangers devour it in your presence, and it is desolate. 
as overthrown by strangers. By the way, when we don't live our Christian values, when we don't practice them, we don't teach them to our children, we don't give them to others, we don't share them with optimism and show the freedom that it has actually produced, when we actually hate the values that have built the country, the world, the nation that we love, when we hate those, it's no wonder that strangers can come in and overthrow them. They don't even know what we believe because we don't know what we believe. The condition of America is due to the lack of personal control of our lusts and our appetites. We've been told for 50 years that you can do as you please without any ramifications. Well, the piper is set to be paid. Christians now even believe this to be true. There's no ramifications. There's no cost to my sin. There is always cost for your sin. As one of the prophets might write, Woe to us, a perverse and crooked people. There is no avarice or sinfulness that is withheld from public display anymore. That which was done in secret is now flaunted before the whole of society. Liberty made the Christian West profitable for mankind. However, unfettered lust makes that liberty an abhorrent plague upon the whole of the world. So Paul writes this in Galatians 5.13, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh or the lusts of your flesh. But by love, choose to sacrifice. By love, serve one another. The word love here is agape. Choose to sacrifice some of your lust. Repress that because it's not healthy. It's not wholesome. This is a desire, but it needs to be contained. This is not how I'm going to live because I want to serve you and you want to serve me. You remember individual soul liberty? That was the foundation of the Christian West. And we've lost it in our modern day. Lust restrained by personal responsibility leads to the freest, happiest nation. By the way, the grand difference between the American Revolution and the French Revolution was that the French political thinkers were not men like Washington, Patrick Henry, John Adams. They were people like Machiavelli and others who wanted nothing but chaos. They, our Christian founders wanted virtue. The Virginia Declaration of Rights, written in 1776, expressly, expressly denies that free government or the blessings of liberty can be preserved to any people, but by a firm adherence to justice, moderation, temperance, frugality, and virtue. And almost all of those are gone in our modern society. The second cause for our decline is inestimable lies. I can't even count them is what that means. It's not a political party. It's not even the far left or the far right. It's not a Republican or a Democrat. It's not the federal government and the local government. They're all crooked. They all seem corrupt. You say all of them, that's a pretty broad statement. Maybe not everyone, but most. As a people here in the United States of America, the beacon of hope, the city on a hill, as many a president calls us, we have a governance that we deserve, meaning every person casts their votes, some twice or three times. I use the word inestimable because we never know how far those in power will go to keep their power. 
nor do we know how far those who are without power might go to overthrow power. Notice what I did there. I took care of both sides of the aisle. That is the problem, by the way, with lying. Parents of young kids, please listen. If you don't want to get anything else out of the message today, get this point. When you let your kids get away with one lie, it always becomes two. Two becomes four. Four becomes 16. And by exponential math, 16 times 16 is a big number. It just gets worse. We live in a people filled with lies. Take your Bible before we close and go to Isaiah chapter 59. One last place and we'll be done. You say, Pastor, you haven't really encouraged me much this morning. Well, we get to the end. I hope to pivot. I, I need us to see the bleakness of the hour before we see the brightness of the Savior. Isaiah 59 verses 1 through 15, we'll read it. I'll make a short application, then I'll read the final three verses or a final set of verses here from the same chapter. The first verse is great. Behold, the Lord's hand is not short that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. Man, that is a great verse, isn't it? Man, there's hope in that. But, oh man. Now tell me if this doesn't sound like us. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue hath muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice. By the way, everybody calls today for social justice, but nobody wants equal justice under the law. Can I tell you a secret? There is no such thing as social justice. <gasps> Just in case you didn't get it. Because social justice today will be a different thing tomorrow, and then there'll be a new need for social justice. Social justice is subjective. Justice is objective. It's equal justice. Under the law is how we've been taught it. Nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch cockatrice eggs, weave spiders eggs. He's going to tell in verse 5 and verse 6 the terrible reality of what these things do. Uh, uh. Don't, I would not recommend you reach into a cockatrice den, that's a snake's den, pull out their eggs and try to eat them. The venom will kill you. That's what he says in verses 5 and 6. We pick up in verse 7. Their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, wasting and destruction are in their path. The way of peace they know not. There is no judgment in their going. They've made them crooked paths. Whosoever goeth therein shall not know peace. Therefore is judgment far from us. Neither doth justice overtake us. We wait for light. Uh, but we behold obscurity. For brightness, but we walk in darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We are in a desolate place as dead men. We roar like bears. Some of those are going on in cities today in riots. And mourn sore like doves. Others on social media are crying their eyeballs out. We look for judgment, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before thee, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. As for iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, and judgment is turned away backward. Justice standeth afar off. For truth, truth is fallen in the street. And equity, because there is no truth, equity cannot enter in. He says finally in verse 15, Yea, truth faileth, and he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. What do you mean you don't want to join in this? I'm going to kill you. We see that all the time today. 
It doesn't mean that we can't still stand up and do what's right. But on the whole, on mass, in our country, man, don't rat him out. Don't be, what's the old 80s term? Don't be a fink. I have to go sometimes, young people, to the older generation so we get their words in. Right? This is a bleak picture, but this is an accurate picture of us today. The Lord saw it and displeased him, it says. That there was no judgment. There was no ability to discern. What a commentary on a nation like Israel. And what a commentary on one like ours that was once blessed by God. Alexander Hamilton, one of our forefathers, said this. The wise politician knows that morality overthrown, and he notes morality must fall with religion. The terrors of despotism can alone curb the impetuous passions of man and confine him within the bounds of social duty. In other words, when we are not living according to our responsibility within our individual soul liberty, the government has to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And guess what it's done? It's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. Because we no longer have a moral people. We no longer have a virtuous people. We don't even have Christians often that want to live by biblical values. Look at verse 16, and then we'll go quickly to the closing. There is hope. (laughs) I don't want you to leave this morning and go, man, that guy really got me in the mood for Christmas. Thanks a lot, Pastor. Maybe I'll be getting some Thanksgiving for that. I don't know. By the way, when you read verses 16 through 19, I want you to think forward to Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, there is a great picture of the Christian warrior stepping out into the life that he or she is supposed to live. All of the battle armaments that are given there are given right here in the same passage. Look what it says in verse 16. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him. This is Jesus Christ coming. In his righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and an helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for a clothing was clad with zeal. The word zeal here means the idea of the zeal of righteousness, doing what is right. The robes of righteousness. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the islands he will repay recompense. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from where? Does that mean like the western part of Israel? I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. That's the beauty of prophecy. It could be us. It has been us. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, from the east to the west. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. What is the standard? Back to the scriptural learning. It's the Bible. That's the standard. In closing this morning, this Sunday following Thanksgiving, you actually can be thankful for all of the things given to you by our forefathers. You should be grateful for the untold millions of believers in Jesus Christ who not only preceded us, but who also provided for us the nations and the governments that allow us opportunity and freedom but we should not waste them. 
Far too many Christians today are just lazy. They don't want to live the Christian life. Why be a Christian then? Well, I mean, it's what I'm supposed to do, but why? I don't have to answer that question. I know why. You do. The rest of the world does. What's so great about this salvation, the writer of Hebrews said, and he tells us how great it is. What should we do then in response to the reality that the Christian West seems to be in decline? What can I do? Keep living Micah 6.8. It is the go-to passage. It is the scripture that you ought to memorize to learn to live an effective Christian life day by day. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do, that is my actions, justly. Choose right decisions. Second, to love mercy. What about those that oppose us? And friend, we're in the minority now. The homosexual and transgender movement has now garnered 7% of the population of the United States, a once Christian nation. Do you know how many Bible-believing, born-again Christians there are estimated are in the country? 11%. Are they our enemy? No, we're to love in mercy and to share the truth with them. Don't shy away from sharing the truth. The final is to walk humbly with thy God. The Christian West. I'm reminded of what old Franklin said when he left... Constitutional Hall that fateful day. Mr. Franklin, the woman asked, what have you given to us, a republic, ma'am, if you can keep it? I might change that slightly for us. A Christian nation, if we pursue it. It takes every believer taking these principles, the very things that built the society, to keep the society. You and your soul liberty being responsible for your choices. You taking the Bible and learning scripturally every single day. You controlling your lust. You refusing to tell lies, but rather living in truth. That is the key to success. That's what makes America great. Past, present, and future. Because we are the Christian West. Father, help us, I pray as we close.